the word of God reads as follows. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are pleased that... um, God has given us an opportunity to go into his word and indeed to start a new series of messages from the epistle to the Galatians. If you have been with us um, for the last several months, we have been going over the life of David. I pray that God bless and encourage your heart as as much, if not more, than he did mine through that series. Um, And I pray the same as we go into God's word and look at the inspired words of God as they come through the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia and ultimately here to East Point Church this morning and beyond. Count it a privilege, indeed a pleasure to share in God's word with you this morning. I pray you would count it the same. On July 4th, 1776, a day that we shall celebrate as a nation in the next coming days, the 13 colonies that would eventually form the United States declared themselves free from the British Empire and the rule of the king in England. They made this declaration public, and now what is famously known as the Declaration of Independence. And in declaring our freedom, the authors of the Declaration of Independence, you remember, wrote these famous words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, the, the letter to the Galatians has often been called the Declaration of Independence for the church. In fact, one commentator, Leon Morris, refers to it as Paul's Charter of Christian Freedom. In fact, if you read through the entire epistle, what I hope, I hope you will do if you haven't done already in the next coming week or so, you'll see that Paul says almost in the words of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. And you see that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 28. And you hear him saying that they have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Liberty in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. And the pursuit of happiness. Galatians 5 and verse 16. And so in a real sense you can kind of see the correlation there that This epistle is an epistle, a charter of Christian freedom 
because, beloved, we have been set free in Christ. And this is the message that Paul wants to give over and over again to the Galatians, that we have been set free, free from sin, free from the condemnation of the law and guilt, free from worldly pursuits and desires. In fact, as you read through the the epistle of Galatians, you'll see that this freedom is brought about through this dispensation of grace. And this grace is a radical grace. In fact, I would argue, as the title of our series should tell you, that the epistle of Galatians is Paul's case for radical grace. It's radical, beloved. It is radical. It was radical to the first hearers. It should still be radical to our minds and our hearts. The Holy Spirit uh, moved and inspired Paul to write this letter to the churches, these group of churches in this area, this region called Galatia, after having visited them and ministered among them and experienced some fruit in the ministry that he had there, on his first missionary journey. And you see this recorded in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And yet following his departure, the churches there in Galatia came under the influence, under the influence of those who questioned Paul's calling, they questioned Paul's credentials, they questioned his authority, And they even began to question his message. In fact, there were those there who actually may have agreed with Paul that the gospel that Paul preached was good, but they were suggesting that though it was good, it was not good enough. It was good enough to get you started, they were suggesting, but it wasn't sufficient. And if you wanted to go into the deeper truths of the Old Testament religion, and you really wanted to know God, then Paul's teaching and the gospel that he proclaimed to you wasn't sufficient. And these people were known as Judaizers. And that is to say that they wanted to influence Christians to become and behave more like Jews. And this would allow them and even facilitate them becoming more in tune and a deeper relationship with God. They wanted the favor and the pleasure of God. Then these Gentile Christians in Galatia must become more like Jews. And for Paul, the answer to the folly of of these teachers and the inherent legalism in their teaching and that they sought to bring into the church was to remind the Galatians and therefore subsequently to remind us of the radical nature of saving grace. Grace is not just amazing, beloved. 
we must see and understand that grace is radical. And a radical nature of grace is on full display in Galatians. Let me just give you a few examples of the radical nature that Paul gives to the Galatians concerning grace. Grace is radical in Galatians because it rescues sinners. It provides for the great escape. Now you have to understand that before Christ, our slavery to sin and our enmity with God was complete and total. There was no hope. You had no hope of being in relationship with God. Your alienation from God was complete and total. And the only hope that you had before Christ was the hope of eternal damnation. Paul says that what Christ did in his person and his work is that he pulled off the greatest escape in the history of humanity. Because he rescued sinners from sin. He rescued sinners from Satan, he rescued sinners from death. And he did all that because of the grace of God. And it's radical, beloved, how full your rescue is in Christ. You are free. Not because of anything you've done but because of Jesus. He rescued you, and you're free. It's not just a radical rescue, but it is the radical union of Jew and Gentile. Grace brings about this radical union of Jew and Gentile being one in Christ. Again, that doesn't register with us. But let me suggest to you this morning, that arguably the most difficult hurdle for the early church to overcome was the division between Jew and Gentile. The differences that existed between Jew and Gentile at the time of the early church makes whatever differences you may think exist between black people and white people look like child play. Jews and Gentiles worshiping together under the same roof, lifting their hands in Christ together, singing the same songs, worshiping the same God without any sense of division, but being one in Christ. That was radical. That happened nowhere but in the church. And it happened because of the grace of God. That's radical. It's not just a radical union of Jew and and Gentile, but also the radical sufficiency of Christ. 
the radical sufficiency of Christ. Only the gospel has someone giving his life for another. And that another becomes in right relationship with God. Do you do understand that only the gospel has salvation unearned? Only the gospel. Every other system of salvation, every other religious structure has you at some point or another earning right relationship with the deity. Every other system except the gospel. For the radical nature of the gospel is that Christ and his person and his work is sufficient unto all things in life and in death. It is hard to fathom that you and I do nothing to be saved except to trust the one who has done it all. It was hard for the Galatians to maintain that. It's hard for us. Because most of us live our lives as if salvation really depends upon us. We really do. Because we really haven't got a hold of a radical nature that is the grace of God. It's radical in living in the spirit as well. Paul reminded the Galatians that it is living in the freedom of the Spirit that brings joy and fulfillment. The Christian life, beloved, is not a burden of a system of regulations, of do's and don'ts, and therefore you will be happy in Jesus. But it is the radical living out of the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus. And again, that's radical because in our hearts of hearts, we just want a to-do list. Give me a 10-point list on how I can live in Christ. That's what you want. That's what you want from my sermons. Because the minute I say, okay, I got five points, you begin to scribble them down. I talk about the grace of God, you look at me like I'm crazy. The Christian life, beloved, is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's living out the freedom that we have in Christ by its spirit. And this is the point that Paul is going to make to the Galatians over and over again. You have been set free. Live in the spirit of the freedom that is Christ Jesus. And that, beloved, is radical. It was radical then. It's radical now. And lastly, the the radical nature of this grace is is seen in the radical call and commission of the Apostle Paul. You want to talk about radical. We understand people get saved, don't they? Because we pray that and we see that, but people like Paul don't get saved. Are you kidding me? 
See, for you and I, we think that's nothing, again, because we are so used to Paul being the Apostle Paul. But for the early church, for Saul to show up one day, persecuting the church, and then the next day, praising Christ, that was radical. No matter how much they believed in the power of God, they still doubted that could happen. And not only save him, but then commission him as an apostle to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to plant churches for the glory of Christ. The only, the only, the only reason that can happen is because of the grace of God. It's because of the grace of God. And this is the message that Paul tells him. He says, my conversion was radical because it was so improbable. And beloved, if the radical grace of God good enough for Paul. It's good enough for me. I pray it be good enough for you. This is the radical nature of this calling, in fact, that we see as Paul opens this epistle. He takes up this calling, the radical nature of grace. He begins with his own calling as an apostle. And as we look at these first five verses this morning, and it serves as our introduction into this blessed epistle, let's look more intently as Paul reminds the Galatians of the radical nature of the calling that he has according to the grace of God, and let it inform us as well of just how improbable and radical the grace of God is in our lives. Notice as this epistle begins, there is these three things I want to point out to you. You can write them down if you hadn't written down anything else yet. There's an apostolic calling. There's an apostolic greeting, and it all informs this apostolic message that's going to be the message of Galatians. And Paul sets the tone right from the beginning with this apostolic calling. Because there were those in the churches of Galatians who thought to challenge Paul's authority and calling, Paul begins this letter to the Galatian churches asserting his apostolic calling. Notice how he begins. He says, this is Paul. This is Paul. And then he says, and I am an apostle. Not, not from men, nor through any human agency, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me testify to this truth. I am an apostle. You know, it's interesting that when the Bible begins, the Bible doesn't begin or even at any time seek to prove the existence of God. 
The Bible just asserts it. In the beginning, God. Why? Because God is not trying to appeal to human beings to know that he exists. He is not proving his existence to us. He doesn't need to. The very fact that you have life in your limbs and breath in your bodies and you didn't give it to yourself ought to remind you that there is a God who exists. So the Bible doesn't prove that God exists. It asserts it. In the beginning, God. And notice here, Paul, (laughs) upon divine authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, isn't going to prove to the Galatians that he is an apostle. He just asserts it. I am an apostle. Deal with it. (laughs) Believe it. What does apostle mean? Literally, it means one who is sent, an ambassador, and a delegate, one who is sent with a message from another. This idea of apostle comes, in some sense, from the Old Testament in the calling and sending of messengers of God. It's like God and Moses, as God sends Moses to be an apostle to the nation of Israel, And he sends this message to Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses was an apostle of God in that sense. It's like Isaiah. When God calls Isaiah and God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Send me with the message. And Isaiah in that sense is like a forerunner of the apostolic ministry of those who would be sent out by Christ. And so we see this in the ministry of Christ as he picks up on this and the original 12 disciples, in fact, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, we see that Christ refers to the original disciples as apostles. The 12 disciples were the apostles of Christ. But the thing about Paul is that in his humility and in his gratitude, Paul never counted himself among the original 12. He never counted himself as an original disciple. He wasn't an OG, or we might call it an an OD. He wasn't an OD. He wasn't an original disciple. And he understood this, and he never counted himself amongst those who had the privilege of walking with Jesus as he walked upon this earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9, Paul in Once again, asserting his own apostleship, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Said that Christ appeared to the twelve, then he appeared to me, but I am least of all the apostles, because I am unworthy of the apostleship. It was G.K. Chesterton who said that you will never appreciate a thing until you realize yourself to be unworthy of it. Paul 
knew himself to be unworthy of being called an apostle of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And therefore, out of gratitude and, and deference and humility, he never counted himself amongst the original 12. And yet, even though he never counted himself among the original 12, he never for a moment doubted his calling. That's why he goes on later on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, but I outworked them all. I ran harder. And you get that sense that Paul ran harder and he worked harder because he believed himself least deserving. He was one who was born out of due season. He was one who was born out of due time. He thought the grace of God especially acute in his life. Because he wasn't there when Jesus walked on water. He wasn't there when Jesus turned the water into wine. He wasn't there. I'm in the upper room when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. He wasn't there in the garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't there when Jesus was resurrected and met with his disciples in all of his glory and splendor, Paul wasn't there when Jesus was ascended on high. He wasn't there when the Holy Spirit came in power on that glorious day we call Pentecost. He wasn't there. And yet, here he is, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says that I am an apostle not by man, nor through man, but through that Jesus Christ whom Peter, James, and John knew personally. I know him too. Don't get it twisted. I may not have been there. But the same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead has risen me up to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is amazing, beloved. This is amazing. Like Peter, James, and John, Paul says, God chose me, Christ chose me, just like he chose them. You know what Jesus I'm talking about. The one that the Father raised from the dead. I'm talking about the resurrected Lord. I'm talking about the Lord who was raised at the test that the disciples saw. I'm talking about the Lord who ascended on high. That same Lord appeared to me commissioned me, called me, and put me in the ministry, and now I am an apostle of that Jesus Christ. And you know what? He says, those who are with me, they confirm what I'm saying. You know, Paul, Paul never traveled alone. Never traveled alone. 
whether it was with Barnabas and, and Mark or with, with Silas and, and Luke or, or Timothy, Paul had companions, co-laborers in the gospel who confirmed his calling. Understand that they didn't call him. They just confirmed the fact that he had been called. Jesus called him. Jesus appointed him. Jesus anointed him. And beloved, this should also just be instructive to us on a little sidebar. Okay? On a little sidebar, there's a lot of people around here running around calling themselves apostles. They hadn't seen the risen Lord. The Lord hadn't commissioned them. Maybe some other so-called apostles came and laid hands on them and called themselves apostles, and so then they're comparing themselves with themselves, which is not wise, and they're ordaining themselves unto themselves, and they can have all the jolly good time they want to. But the fact of the matter is there are no more apostles. The Lord called them. Today, men who are called into the ministry, they are called and laid hands on by men in the church. When I stood to be called into the ministry, beloved, I may believe in my heart that God and Jesus Christ has called me. But my calling ultimately comes through the church. Paul's calling came through Jesus and no one else. No one else. No one else. You see then the radical nature of his calling, don't you? And the calling to be an apostle. It is a radical calling. And Paul follows up this radical calling, this apostolic calling with this apostolic greeting in verse 3. After establishing this calling and this authority that comes only from Christ, because Christ only called Paul to be this apostle, Paul gave the Galatians his, his normal apostolic greeting. It's the favorite way of Paul opening his letters. I, I do believe that it is the opening that Paul has in all but two or three of his epistles. At some point, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The wonderful blessing of God that Paul greets the Galatians with, this idea of grace. The word is charis. It's the understanding of kindness and, and favor. It is the divine pleasure of God, undeserved and unearned. It has its roots in the Old Testament under the Hebrew word keset, which is translated as the steadfast love of God. It's translated as his covenant faithfulness. It is often translated as his loving Kindness is what we often sing about from Psalm 63 and, and verse 3 where it says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, because your chesed is better than life, my lips will praise you. 
Because all that we have and all that we are in Christ is according to the loving kindness, the covenant faithfulness, the steadfast love, the grace of God. Everything, beloved. Everything you have and everything you are is according to the loving kindness and the mercy and grace of God. The Bible says grace is your salvation, doesn't it? In Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 8, the Bible says that we have been saved by grace. It's your salvation. But it's not only your salvation, it is also the instruction of your Christian life. As Paul says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 12, that the grace of God has appeared to all men, instructing us, teaching us to live lives that are godly, denying the ungodliness of this world. What does that? Grace. Grace not only saves you, it's the grace of God that instructs you, that leads you and guides you upon the Christian life to walk the Christian path. It is grace. Grace is everything. It is everything. It is the fount of every blessing. It is our rescue when we are lost. Grace is our riches in our poverty. Grace is food when you're hungry. Grace is water when you're thirsty. Grace is shelter in the times of storm. You are nothing without it, but with it we have all things, and you and I need it every hour. Every moment of every day, we need the goodness of God. And this is why Paul can say, grace to you. What a blessed greeting that is. Perhaps we ought to greet one another more frequently with that, or the brother or sister, and just say, grace to you. Grace to you. And those who understand that their lives is just but the representative of, of God's mercy and grace in their lives, when they hear that, it will warm their soul because whatever is happening at that moment, they realize that I am who I am by the grace of God. Grace to you this morning. Church, grace to you. Grace. The favor and the loving kindness of God is yours this morning. Grace to you. And Paul says, and peace. Grace and peace. And peace. Peace is the Greek word of irene. It means harmony. It means prosperity. Is a sense of a wholeness of life when all of life is integrated and all the pieces are put together so that all of life is experienced in the fullness that God created it to be experienced. Again, it has its roots in the Old Testament of the word that is shalom. Shalom just sounds like a peaceful word. It's one of those words that sound like what it is. Every time I talk to, to Bob, we're on the phone, the last thing he says is, Shalom. That's the best part of the conversation. 
<laughs> shalom. It sounds like really what it is. It is the peace of God. And you see it there in Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, where we see that it is the blessed smile of God where it is well, not just with our soul, but it is well with our lives. Where the ironic blessing, it says there in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. It is God's face smiling upon you. It is his countenance looking upon you, lifting his gaze upon you, and you look in his face, and there is Pleasure and peace. The last thing you want, beloved, is to look in the face of God and see displeasure. The last thing you want is to behold the face of Christ and see in his eyes a fiery wrath. That is the only hope of those who never come to Christ. When they behold Christ, they will behold him as a conquering warrior with eyes of fire. But such is not the case for those who are in Christ. For when they see the coming Savior, it won't be eyes of fire they behold be eyes of love and a peace will overwhelm their soul like never before because they will see the promise of this blessed blessing when he has smiled on you he has lifted up his countenance upon you and it will not only be well with your soul it will be well with your entire life you know what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 through 7? Of course you do. It says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This peace, beloved, that we shall have in fullness when the Lord's return is even ours now. And it is the result of faithful prayer. And it's those who go to Christ in prayer and lay it all at his feet. It's those who refuse to be anxious. Because they know their Christ is sufficient unto all things. It is these that in prayer who lay it all on Jesus. Who are able to get up with a peace that the world says they cannot understand. How? How can you have such peace in the midst of such 
turmoil. How can you have peace when all around you is falling apart? How can you have peace when family and job and relationships and all things around you are just in chaos? How can you have that peace? Because you know, in Christ, God, no matter what my circumstances say, he smiles on me. And I can go to him in prayer. And I can leave it there. And I don't have to be anxious. And it is a peace you don't understand. Because it is a peace that the world doesn't give. It is a peace that the world can't take away. But it's for those who go to God in prayer. And it's ours. Because you understand that life, beloved, might rattle your cage. But when you pray, you are reminded that nothing rattles God. Nothing rattles God. And Jesus is our peace. You see that. This this greeting of grace and peace is a personal greeting, beloved. Because notice what Paul says. He says, the God and Father who raised Christ from the dead in verse 1, this God now in verse 3 is our Father. The God and Father who raised Christ from the dead is our Father, the Christ who was raised is our Lord. The gospel, beloved, even the greeting that Paul gives here in preparation for the gospel message is not an impersonal gospel. For God is not impersonal. It is not an impersonal greeting. But it comes to us. It belongs to us because we personally belong to God and he belongs to us. It is not just God the Father. It is God our Father. It is not just Jesus the Lord. It is Jesus our Lord. We belong to him. His names, our names, are written in his hands. He knows each one of us by name. He knows how many hairs are left on your head, Philip. He knows. Even the ones you can't see. He knows. Because you belong to him personally. That's why you can call on him. Because he is your father. He is your Lord. He's your God. He belongs to you. Because, beloved, 
you belong to Him. We don't have an impersonal God. The Jews understood God impersonally. There was always a barrier, some type of barrier between them and God. It, 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 was, it was the veil of, was it the veil of the temple? What is the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? There was always some mediation between them and God. The Muslims don't have a personal relationship with God. And God is totally out there, living on a hope and a prayer. And a God who is out there, don't come here and destroy me because I didn't pray today. But the Christian, the God who is out there, has come near. But not only near, the Bible says that he is in you. Your hope of glory. Do you understand that? He is your Lord who is not out there, who didn't just come near, but now he is in me. That's why he's mine and I am his. Because he is in me and I in him. And he is my hope of glory. This grace and peace that Paul greets them with is a personal greeting. It belongs to his beloved. He is our Father. He is our Lord. He is our God. And we are his people. Bless his holy name. Notice that this apostolic calling and this apostolic greeting then gives way as Paul begins to unpack this apostolic message. The apostolic calling gives way to this message, and the message is this, beloved. Christ for us. That's the message. Christ for us. If you want to write anything down, just write down those three words and meditate on them every day. Christ for us. Because, beloved, that is the gospel. Christ for us. You know this greeting that Paul gives is grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know why it is a blessing? It is a blessing not because Paul said it. That's not why it is a blessing. It is a blessing because of what it points to. And it points to the person and work of Christ. The reason why grace can come to you, the reason why peace can be yours, is because Christ is for you. He's for us. And this is the message. This is the message of the apostles. This is the hope of the church. Christ for us. And Paul demonstrates this in three ways. I want to write these down too, huh? Notice what Christ did, Paul says. He gave himself for us. That's what he did. He gave himself for us. And this is frequently the way that the Bible speaks of the work of Christ. What Christ did, he did for us. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 
25, the Bible says that he gave himself up for the church. Christ gave himself up for her. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that he gave himself for us to redeem us. He gave himself for us. In John chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus promised this. He says, no man takes my life, but I freely lay it down. Why? He did that for us to deliver us from sin, yes, but also from this present evil age. To deliver us. He gave himself up for us to deliver us from sin and this present evil age. Now what is this idea of this present evil age and how is Christ delivering us from it? Well, this present evil age is the age in which the apostles lived. It's the age in which we live since Christ. It is where the world has sought to live more and more and more ungodly. It's the age of the apostles. It is the age of the world since Christ. The only church calling it the present age, we often refer to it as the world. It is the age of ungodliness. It is the age of political and military and social and economic strife. The age in which we live. It is the age that, that seeks to undermine God's word and God's reality. And we see it all around us. It is the, it is the world that seeks to undermine the, the order and the blessedness of, of family and marriage in the world that we see. It is, it is the world that, that kills and slaughters babies out of convenience and then celebrates laws that protect people for doing so. It is that age, it is the age where the rich lavish themselves with more and more and the poor have less and less to survive on. It is the world in which we find ourselves. It is Wall Street obsessed with money and Hollywood obsessed with sex and all of America obsessed with them both. It is the world and the age in which we live, beloved, and we are immersed in it. Every day, we are immersed in it like fish in water. We swim in it. We swim upstream, but we swim in it. It is all around us. It is the world that is seeking to conform us to its ways and thinking and living and hoping and dressing and walking and talking. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 that it is this world that lies in the power of the evil one. It is that age. The age that is under the control and lies in the power of the evil one. It is the age according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 where we formerly walked, where we once had our existence, 
where we once lived, supposedly. It is that age and world that says in 1 John chapter 2 and 15 that we are not to love. In verse 16 of that same chapter is that age and world that is full of lustful desires. It is the age that hates God and his people. It is the world and the age that James tells us in James chapter 1 and verse 27 from which we are to remain unstained. Because it is that age, beloved, in 1 John chapter 2 and Verse 17 that the Bible says it is passing away. It is passing away. Since the coming of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ, that age, that world is passing away. It may not look like it's passing away, beloved, but believe me, it is passing away. And all those who are caught up in it and all those who are gripped by it will eventually pass away with it. This is why the Bible tells us don't be caught up in it. Don't be gripped by it. Don't fall in love with it because it is passing away. And it is this age that Christ has redeemed us he has redeemed us from this so that we are no longer children of darkness. We are children of light. We don't walk in the kingdom of darkness. We walk as children in the kingdom of light. And therefore, you don't have to live in the darkness of this age. Christ has redeemed you from this present age. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. You don't have to think like this present age thinks. You don't have to talk like this present age talks. You don't have to dress like this present age dresses. You don't have to live like this present age lives because you have been redeemed from it. Christ has set you free. You can stand out like light in the darkness. You can stand out and know that the one who has redeemed you stands with you as this whole age is passing away. That's the strength. That's the glory. That's the radical nature of the gospel of grace. You don't have to live like the world around you. You've been redeemed from it. And somebody says, well, I just can't help myself. I just can't help myself. You're right. You can't help yourself and you need to stop trying. Because you may not be able to help yourself. But Jesus can help you. He has redeemed you from this present age. He didn't redeem you to leave you. He has redeemed you. He has set you free. 
and by his spirit, he will empower you to live according to his glory and for his will, even in this present age. That is indeed what our Lord was, what Christ has done. And then Paul says, but notice how he did it. He did it according to the will of God the Father. What has he done? He has redeemed us from this present age. How did he do it? He he did it according to the will of the Father. The gift of salvation and life in Christ is a gift from God the Father. From God the Father. Christ died according to the Father's love for us. Understand, beloved. It was God's will. That Christ gave himself for us. It's God, it was God the Father's will. Isaiah chapter 53 says that it pleased God to crush him, doesn't it? It pleased God to crush him. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, speaking of God, he says, He did not spare his own son, but freely and graciously gave him up for us all. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14, the Bible says, The Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. When I was a young boy growing up in church, you often heard preachers kind of tell the story as if God was looking around heaven and couldn't find anybody to go, and therefore Jesus all of a sudden stood up and said, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. And it sounds good, it's quite anecdotal, isn't that right, preachers? (laughs) But it's not very analytical. For the Bible says that it was God the Father who sent Jesus, his son, to be our Savior. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. The Father gave the son and it was According to his will. That's how he did it. He did it according to the will of God. And why did he do it? He did it for the glory of God. And this is the end of all things, isn't it? What is the chief end of man, the catechism asks? And we all know the answer. It is to glorify God. And this is the real issue. This is the real issue at stake in the epistle to Galatians. The problem here is that they were at risk of not just losing the gospel. They were at risk of losing the glory of God. Because once the gospel goes, the glory goes with it. Paul Real sense is saying to the Galatians, listen, be careful, because if you continue down this path, God is going to write Ichabod on the door. Because once you lose the sufficiency and the centrality of Jesus Christ, you lose everything. The glory of God. 
Because the reason that Christ came and gave himself for us is because of the glory of God. He did it for his glory. This is why, beloved, this is why you do understand that we really make much of Jesus. This is why we make much of Jesus. Because Jesus came for the glory of God. And in Jesus, all the glory of God dwells. And if you want the glory of God, you have to have Jesus. This is why we make much of Jesus. But it's not only why we make much of Jesus. You understand this is why the Bible makes much of Jesus. The Bible over and over again is pointing people funneling people to the person and work of Christ. Why? Because God the Father makes much of Jesus. God the Son makes much of Jesus. God the Holy Spirit makes much of Jesus. God the Father sent the Son to die for us. Who did he send? He sent Jesus. God the Son came and gave himself up for us. Who did he give up? He gave himself. Who is that? Jesus. God the Holy Spirit comes and applies to our hearts and opens our eyes to the beauty and the majesty of who? Jesus. That's why we make much of Jesus. That's why we preach Jesus. That's why we sing Jesus. That's why we proclaim Jesus and make no apologies for it. Because in Christ, all the fullness of the glory of God dwells. And that's why Paul preaches to the Galatians, you are about to lose Jesus. Be careful. Because when you lose him, you lose it all. Beloved, if you didn't hear it already, this is radical. And Paul is saying, and you're going to see in the next couple of weeks, he's not going to pull any punches because this is serious. You lose Jesus. You lose it all. And Paul is not going to let the church go down without a fight. And I pray, I pray that we don't let our church ever go down without a fight. We're going to fight for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We're going to, like Paul, make a case for radical grace.